0: Sections in either of Peter's epistles regarding our Christian responsibility, and that's what he's teaching us here from this passage today. So I'm going to pick up again with verse 18 and read through verse 25. We're going to focus primarily this morning on on verses uh, 21 and 22, and as I said at the the beginning of the uh, uh, worship this morning. This is uh, the Memorial Day weekend. We're going to observe the memorial of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so it is appropriate that as we look at the scripture in these verses, 21 and 22, we are witnessing what Peter reminds us is a memorial to our Savior. Let's read it. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our own sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this passage teaches us about submission, but we have a great example, and we'll see that in these verses here, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who taught us and teaches us how to live and to die. And so as we focus this morning submitting to sufferings because of Christ, this, Peter said, is what you're called to. So let's be reminded of that and go to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. Father, bless our pray The word today, as we endeavor to exegete it, to unfold it, so that we may hide it in our hearts in order that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, actually on Easter Sunday, The Wall Street Journal had an article entitled Our Many Jesuses. Uh, Very interesting read. And just a few clips from the article. Uh, The article began focusing on the ad that we all saw during Super Bowl and, and since then on the He Gets Us campaign. Uh, and it, in this particular article here, the author says the message of each, talking about the, the uh, two ads that ran, the message of each were explicit only in the written words at the end. Jesus didn't want us to act like adults for the first one, and Jesus loved the people we hate for the second. Both ended with the slogan, He gets us, all of us, and of course I spoke to that um, on Easter Sunday. So the article goes on, Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Seminary, it says there was, there was some disturbance, obviously, among progressives across our land and then also among uh, those that are, are Orthodox. And the article says, at the same time, some conservative Christians have voiced skepticism of the project's focus on Jesus' humanity and his social message rather than on his divinity and call to conversion. Dr. Moeller told listeners of his podcast, when we talk about persons actually coming to faith in Christ, it actually takes the clear presentation of the gospel itself. They have to be told about their sin, and all must be told about Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We believe, he goes on, Jesus was fully God and fully man. The campaign said in a statement, our media messages focuses on his humanity since we've learned these resonate with the widest possible audience, and of course they do. It's the deity that causes heartburn. Then we extend an open invitation to engage and learn more, which in and of itself is uh, a good thing. Another individual by the name of uh, R. Reno, who's the editor of the conservative religious journal First Things, He writes, modern culture is less receptive to the demanding Jesus of Scripture. That's what we see here. The demanding Jesus of Scripture. Who tells his followers, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And who sternly forbids divorce. The contrast between the welcoming Jesus... And the demanding Jesus parallels in some ways that between a Jesus who calls for social justice and one who calls for repentance and personal (laughs) conversion. And it goes on to outline a number of ideas that people have about our Christ. Uh, And Reno goes on to say, what has been happening in American Christianity is that morality has been placed first. He explains the campaign has sought a less divisive approach by focusing on Jesus' demonstrations of uh, unconditional love. Talks about prosperity theology. In fact, there's a picture of um, uh, Joel Osteen. The portrait of Jesus in some versions of prosperity theology is one that many would find jarring. A man who enjoyed, and this this is interesting because uh, a man who enjoyed great personal wealth during his earthly life, talking about Jesus. From the gold, frankincense, and myrrh he received at his nativity to the seamless garment he wore at his crucifixion. uh, I don't know a lot about the Bible, but what I do know about the Bible, I've yet to find that. Another version of Jesus that clashes with more uh, more common representations is that of the warrior Jesus, to make men strong. This is based on the book of Revelation. And so basically what is said here is that if you don't agree with the biblical portrait of Jesus Christ, just conjure up one of your own making. Because Jesus is fluid. Books such as Jesus and John Wayne. To make sure that we remain masculine. Or uh, Jesus and the Ghetto. Hundreds, thousands of these. Have been written and read. That lift out of context. A Jesus. That is not found in Scripture. The fact that there's just so many different voices, Christian Smith, who's a uh, professor of sociology at Notre Dame, says that how can you possibly know or choose? He says, so you just pick whatever appeals or whatever appeals or what doesn't appeal to you. Some believe that The transcendent Christian significance of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection nevertheless shines through even partial statements of this teaching. Forgiveness and love of your enemies is a sacrificial act, says Mr. Reno, speaking of the he gets us out of the topic. It's an act that compensates for the fallenness of the human condition. So I ask you this morning, how does my view or the culture's view of Christ align with the Word of God? And we see in these four short verses here that Peter writes an amazing Christology teaching us more about the suffering of Jesus than perhaps the Gospels themselves. Peter here paints a portrait of Christ's suffering. This portrait accords with Old Testament. In fact, he quotes from the book of Isaiah. It accords with the Old Testament And it complements the gospel records in the New Testament. It corrects any false example of God the Son. In fact, he uses the word, verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for, for us, leaving us an example. We'll talk about that as we move through this passage this morning. So Peter explores why we are called to suffer because of the suffering of Jesus Christ. First slide, if you would, Mr. Logan. Thank you. <clears throat> so last Sunday, I didn't quite complete the uh, verse, uh, verse 20, so we're going to back up just a bit and go into that. That's slide 326, son. <clears throat> Verse 20 is a it's a play on words. Peter says this, "For what credit is there if when you are sinned, if you do something that is wrong and you are harshly treated that you endure it with patience?" Now, I'm speaking to people that often do things wrong. We do them every day. We commit sins or we omit the nature of spiritual activity that we have in Jesus Christ. And we do it every day. I do it every day. There's no particular virtue in your sin and and no particular virtue if you sin uh, and you are punished because of something you did. That is in accord with what we learn from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's no virtue if we whine because we consider ourselves to be victims. There's no virtue if we take that patiently. That's what Peter is saying. And Peter speaks from experience. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Of all the disciples, there was no larger whiner than Peter no more impetuous disciple than Peter. But he now goes on to say, if when you do good, now this is what he's focused on. If when you do good and you suffer and you patiently endure it, this is, he says, he, he uses the word commendable, which translated means this is a grace to God. And then he begins to to outline for us, beginning in verse 21, why this is so, because Jesus did nothing but good. There was never an evil intent or a thought of evil intent in his mind. We have no way of comparing ourselves with Jesus in this fashion. We don't. And so Peter says if you do good and you suffer for doing good and then you are patient in your endurance, it lifts grace to God and God is pleased with you when you are patient and don't deserve the suffering. Why? Because Jesus did not deserve his suffering. In fact, his suffering was in my place. Now some of you are in employment situations, and basically in verse 18, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about slaves, and we can, uh, bond servants, we can use that to uh, examine our own lives. Some of you are perhaps in situations in your employment that are not fair. uh, And we can. We certainly can judge what is fair. Sometimes we judge what is fair unfairly, and we talked about that last Sunday. But we do know that there are occasions when our employers do not treat us or others fairly. In fact, look at what he says. Um, for what credit is it if when you are beaten? Now, thankfully, we don't have to go through beatings, or at least physical beatings, any longer. Slaves did. And the word there is harshly treated, or it means literally to punch with a fist. Now, keep this in mind. Mark 14, Mark's record of the crucifixion of Jesus, or the beginning of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his passion. Then some began to spit on him, harshly treated. They blindfolded him. They beat him. And then they said to him, prophesy. Tell us who did these things to you. And Mark goes on and says, and the officers, those that were to be above the enlisted soldiers, those that were to conduct themselves in a manner that reflects an officer's character. They became devoid of that character, and Mark says the officers struck him with a palm of their hands. A blindfolded, (coughs) crown of thorns placed upon him, as Jesus is being prepared to be excruciatingly whipped, they literally are mocking and making fun of him. That's harshly treated. That's the word for beaten there. So Peter is recalling this. And he's writing now uh, probably 30, 35 years from this, the time this happened. The beating of slaves in Peter's day was common Inasmuch as they didn't obey, this is perhaps one of the reasons that uh, Onesimus left Philemon. It was often open to the, to the whims of the masters. We don't have to endure, thankfully, this type of physical abuse. But our testimony, and this is what he's saying, if you suffer for the good that you do, our testimony is supported by our submission. We trust our Lord we submit to him, and to our employees, because verse twenty-one begins, "To this you were called." Next slide. Now there's a parallel passage. Drop, uh, turn over just a moment to chapter three. This one, this this passage is more difficult than the one in chapter two, and the. You'll see that here in just a moment. For Christ also, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. There's the word again. Peter makes a point of illuminating the sufferings of his Savior. And there's a reason for this, which we'll see in Peter's life. The just for the unjust. Remember, everything Christ did was good. Everything. that he might bring us to God. A good man, Paul said, perhaps would suffer for another good man, but rarely a good man for an evil man. Yet Christ died for us, Romans 5, while we were still in our sins. There is no other human example, be they disciple, be they apostle, be they prophet, be they preachers, his mother ad infinitum. Like Christ. Not my grandmothers, not my granddads, not my moms, my dads, my sisters, my brothers, no other human example. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to death being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison and I'm going to stop there because this is one of the more difficult passages of scripture brother Josh Tripp has has uh, volunteered to preach through this when we get to this passage right brother he and I have talked about it Very difficult, so I'm going to turn it over to Josh and let him say whatever he wants to say when we get to that. Suffering. I don't like that, preacher. (laughs) I don't either. Suffering in your job. I don't like that, preacher. I don't either. This is what and why we were called. Not to have the idea that Jesus was a wealthy individual on earth and that what he was given at his birth and the seamless robe and so forth, which was essentially a mockery. How sad we are when we can arrive at such a conclusion. Why are believers called to suffer? Because he suffered leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. The servant, Jesus said, is not above his master. There are many that profess Christ today that don't want to think about this. Now, we're not talking again about a, an illness-related suffering. Many of you. There have been times when I've suffered from illnesses or accidents. But that's not what Peter is talking about. He is talking about sufferings at the hand of another person. Peter is the same man who repudiated Jesus with curses. He cursed and he swore, I don't know this man when he was betrayed. He cursed his Lord. Then he stood by weeping as Jesus was led from the praetorium across to the Via Della Rosa, which is the, the uh, passageway from the temple to Golgotha. He watched Jesus. The Bible says when the, third, when, the, when the rooster crowed the third time, he turned and he looked at Peter. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. So this is the same Peter that had been convicted by a single glance from the Savior. He distanced himself beginning in Matthew chapter 16. Go with me there if you will. Same Peter. So when we say Peter was impetuous, when we say that Peter whined, let's look at some of these Uh, just uh, one of these incidences. There are numbers of them, but we're going to look at one of them this morning. Verse 21, Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, as the word again, suffer, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside. Now this, Peter is thinking this is a good thing. I'm going to take up for the Savior. Well, let's see. He began to rebuke him. In the Greek, that's the strongest verbal denunciation of what Christ had said. So Peter's thinking, (laughs) You know, the Lord. The Lord's made a mistake. Certainly this is not going to happen. This man is good. We've seen him. We've watched him. He's, he's fed thousands. He's raised the dead. He has healed these. He's preached. Thousands have come to know him as Savior. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, Christ, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now remember this. If you're listening, say amen. 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 I perhaps have told you this before, but it won't bears repeating. This is Jesus speaking to a disciple whom he loved. This is not a violent, abrasive statement. This is a... The verbiage from Christ to one that he loved. Get behind me, Satan. He speaks directly to Peter. Does this accord with the many Jesuses? And what he said is not sinful. Yet behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. Now the word offense is a direct repudiation of Peter's use of the, of, uh, or of the verbiage that Matthew uses when he says rebuke. It is the reversal of that rebuke. You are an offense to me. You're an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. How do you think Peter felt? I think Peter said, he hurt my feelings. Christ goes on. He uses this as a a teaching moment. You, you, uh, Folks that are teachers, you know that you're always looking for an opportunity to teach your students or your children. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter was not taking up the cross. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, did the Lord forgive Peter? Absolutely. Look at chapter 17. He's not holding a grudge, but he did correct him. There's conviction here. There's correction. That's what our Lord does. It would be a sad life to go and never have anyone correct you, to never have any conviction. A sad, sad life. Six days Jesus took Peter, the same Peter. James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured. So... We see what's taking place here. Look at verse 4. <laughs> then Peter, well, I've got to make amends now, stuck my foot in my mouth. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let's make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Sounds good. Lord, I don't want you to die. Lord, let's make three tabernacles. Sounds good. While he was still speaking, God the Father enters the scene. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my monogenes. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. You're missing the point, Peter. The one that you follow is not a mere man. He's my son. My beloved son. Hear him. So twice in space, not after six days, so about a week. Twice Peter doesn't understand why Jesus would suffer for him because naturally Being human, he resisted human suffering. If I were to ask you this morning how many of you want to suffer, after a show of hands, not going to see many hands, if any. Because naturally, we don't want to suffer. And this incurs the strongest rebuke of Christ in the New Testament to any of his disciples. By the way, this was about six months or so before Christ went to Jerusalem. He reminds him. He starts to tell him, I'm going to Jerusalem to be betrayed and crucified. About six months before he actually goes. Now, did Peter learn about suffering? Yes, he did. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. This is the same Peter that now has preached a great sermon on the day of Pentecost thousands of souls are converted the church at jerusalem is formed what a tremendous opportunity that god had that uh, the lord jesus had bestowed upon peter in spite of his insufferable self-promotion the lord loved him look at acts 4 This is Peter and John. Now as they spoke to the temple, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they talked to people and preached uh, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Jump over to chapter 5. Verse 17, and the high priest rose up and all that were with, who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, again he's preaching the resurrection, Sadducees don't like that. They were filled with indignation, laid their hands on the apostles, put them in the common prison, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life, go back, preach again the resurrection. So he'd been jailed. Look at verse 40. Peter is arrested. Peter and John, they are arrested. They are brought before the Sanhedrin, verse 40, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, same word Peter uses in First Peter 2. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Look at chapter 11. So there is verbal slander within the church of Jerusalem about what Peter is preaching. Chapter 11, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. They received the word, chapter 10, through Peter. Peter did exactly what the Spirit of God told him. Go to Cornelius, preach the word. Cornelius is converted and his household. Comes back to the church of Jerusalem and now... A bunch of the Judaizers are upset. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into the uncircumcision, and you ate with them. So Peter's suffering is not only to the religious individuals that were unsaved. Apparently, some of his suffering also were with those that did not understand justification by faith. And then in chapter 12, about the time, verse 1, that Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, he killed James, the brother of John, the sons of thunder, James and John. James was killed with a sword, and because he saw that he pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, or the Passover, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And so he's in prison. This is the last time in Acts that we hear about Peter's imprisonment. In fact, it's one of the last times we hear about Peter, period, in the book of Acts, because Luke travels now with Paul and Barnabas, and eventually Paul and Silas. What do we learn here? He was imprisoned here, he was chained to soldiers, and now he is writing from Rome telling these pilgrims that you're called to this suffering. Is that a way to build a church? Well, apparently the Spirit of God thinks so. Next slide. There's a couple of things I want to remind you of about Peter. And a great little book entitled, uh, written by a man by the name of Fox, it's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, you can find it. It's hard, sometimes it's hard to find. I'm not sure that Amazon may have it, but I'm not sure. In any event, I have a copy from my dad. In it, it says, and I quote Peter was put to death by crucifixion, but in a very extraordinary way, with his head downwards, a mode of martyrdom sometimes practiced for the sake of aggravating the sufferings of the martyr. This was predicted by the Lord in John chapter 21. When again, Peter, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord tells Peter, Peter, when you're old, they're going to take you where you want to go or where you don't want to go. And you're going to end up being killed. Peter didn't want to hear that, even after the resurrection. And he says, well, what about John? It's not fair, Lord, that I die. What about John? And the Lord said, "What happens to John is really none of your business, Peter. He's my child. I will take care of him." And Peter and Paul, uh, excuse me, John, died. Tradition says, in Ephesus, preaching. Literally died in the pulpit, preaching. But he did die. John 21, Peter seems to know that this event is near at hand, as he writes about that here, or he writes about it in 2 Peter. He says, shortly, I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus has shown me. Did Peter learn submission? Yes. Peter's been called the first Baptist because it took him a long time, but he learned it. Peter now is about 70 years of age, which was aged. I'm a little past 70, so I'm aged. He was imprisoned for nine months in Rome before being crucified on the Vatican Hill by Nero. One of the reasons that the Catholics selected uh, Vatican Hill to build St. Peter's was because this is supposedly where Peter was crucified. George Jewett wrote a book entitled The Drama of the Lost Disciples and in it he says this how Peter managed to survive those nine long dreadful months is beyond human imagination. During his entire incarceration he was manacled in an upright position. Seventy-year-old man, chained to a column, unable to lay down to rest. When he did rest, it was in an upright position. History tells us the amazing fact that in spite of all the suffering, and he did suffer, Peter was subjected, and in spite of all the suffering that Peter was subjected to, he converted his jailers we have their names Procesius and Martineus, and it's also said that there were about 47 other guards and attendants and torturers to this you will call next slide So Peter says, why is Christ our example for suffering? And I want you to think for a moment. When we finish the book of Romans, Paul spent the last two chapters talking about a number of individuals that were believers. And he talks about those that were in the household of Caesar. So the Christian faith, although small at that time, or the numbers being small at that time, had propagated through Peter and Paul and through John, and no doubt others, Luke, Apollos, Barnabas, Silas, to a point to where there were those that had come to a saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. But have you ever noticed in the New Testament that when you come to a passage on suffering and Paul would do it as well that Peter and the other New Testament uh, authors focus their message on the beauty grace mercy and love of the Lord has that ever dawned on you and that's what we see here Peter breaks into a doxology Paul would break into a doxology often. Yes, I'm suffering, but I have not suffered as my Lord suffered. And have you ever noticed that most everything they write about revolves around or revolves about how all of our life is intensified because of his suffering? The two things here, he says the first one is that Christ is our example. The word that is used there comes hubo uh, which basically means to trace. It's elementary instruction. It's found only here in the New Testament. I don't know that they still do this, but because I'm an aged man, that's okay. But I do remember, we didn't go to kindergarten. I don't know whether we were smart enough not to go or we were dumb enough not to go, I don't know. But anyway, we went straight into first grade, which I guess is today's kindergarten, I don't know. And maybe because I didn't go to kindergarten, that tells you a lot more about me than anything else I could come up with. But you remember how you learned to write, or at least I learned to write? The teacher, Mrs. Donnell was my first grade teacher. She was about 110 years old at that time. And bless her heart, uh, she, was, uh, she was an excellent teacher that I remember. And so she would hand out papers that had the alphabet on them, capital A, little a. Capital B, little b, so forth, all the way through. Then she would hand out a thinner sheet of paper and she would say, place this piece over the handout and trace the letters. So I learned to write this way. This is a capital A. This is a small letter A. Now I'll write it differently now, but Learned how to write it then all the way through. That's what Peter's saying. Christ, the example of Christ's life, should be traced by us. It's not my life and him living in me. It is his life living through me. Christ is our pattern, and we trace our lives over his life, and we follow his dying. It's not the crucifixion, the, the, the truth of the gospel is not just a commemoration which we'll observe. It is part of that, but it's far deeper in our lives. And there's no better way to learn from Jesus' life than the seven I am statements that's contained in John's Gospel. We'll go through these. I'll close when we come back next time. We we'll look at the seven statements from the cross, because this group, the seven I am statements, teach us how to live. The seven statements from the cross amplify how to live with Christ being our example. John 6. John 6 is an amazing chapter. It's also a very controversial chapter. A very powerful teaching of Jesus Christ. And in this, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus also reiterated this statement a couple of times in the latter part of John 6. He mentions it several times. If he mentions something once, we should listen. If it's more than once, then that he has a purpose to why he is saying what he's saying. And this teaches us that Christ supplies the spiritual sustenance required for life. We don't. Christ supplies that because he is the bread. We must partake of the bread. And we'll do that here in just a moment. His body. It is required to sustain our spiritual life. This is required to sustain our spiritual life. Next slide. The second one, John 8 and verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Jesus removes spiritual blindness with the light of his word. We're going to see when we come to the, his statements from the cross that all of those involved with his crucifixion are woefully, willfully ignorant of who Christ was. The light of the world removes spiritual blindness, blindness, and Christ through his spirit is the only one that can remove that. Thirdly, John 10, verses 7 through 9. This is the only parable in the Gospel of John. I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus and Jesus alone opens the door to our spiritual peace. Fourthly, John 11, verse 25, I'm the good shepherd. Talks about sheep in John 10, continues into chapter 11. He says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am, excuse me, that should be 1025, not 1125. 1125 is is number five. 1025, I'm a good shepherd. Same uh, found in John 10. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am a good shepherd. I know my sheep. I am known by my own. Jesus indeed is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. But he's also, because of this, our pastor. That's what the word means. Now, pastor, he's the overseer of our souls. In John 11, Jesus, before he resurrected Lazarus, says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. This goes back to the phrase, he said, because I live, he says, you will live also. Do you believe this? Jesus asked. Mary and Martha, do you believe this, that I'm the resurrection and the life? A lot of people today, even claiming to be born-again believers, are doubting heaven and surely doubting hell. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection. Many people today are living by justification by death instead of justification by faith. I will be justified when I die. And the Bible doesn't teach that, neither did the Lord. Number six, John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, this is a sticking point. Many Jesus's sticking point. He's the only exclusive way to God because he is God. And then finally in John 15, as he was teaching his, uh, John 14, John 15, teaching his disciples, he says, I am the true vine. You are the branches. He says, my father is the husbandman. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. This is one of the strongest uh, verses in the scripture for eternal life and for the security we have, not because of us, because of Jesus. Peter says, to this you were called. This is what is necessary. By the way, I think I've told you before, but the words, the two words, I am, In English, go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. I am that I am. It is the highest expression of Old Testament deity, and Jesus used it precisely because he was God. This is how we are to live. Do you live that way this morning? One of the things that we're going to learn as we venture through in these seven statements on the cross, notice what it says, verse 22: who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. It is interesting that Jesus, during his earthly ministry for three years, three and a half years, that Jesus would preach, he would teach, he would stand his ground, he would correct those that were uh, in error about who he was and about who his father was. He went about during that time ensuring that people understood the truth about the good news. He changed and challenged their false assumptions about his father and about who he was He withstood them face to face. One of the last things that he said in Matthew 22, in verse 22, is this. What do you think of Christ, whose son is he? He goes to Gethsemane. He prays. He takes with him his disciples. The temple guards come and arrest him because Judas had betrayed him. The last public words that he says, whom do you seek? Are you seeking Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To this we were called. Whom do we seek? Do we seek the many other Jesuses because they make us feel comfortable in our own skin and in our own sin? Or do we fall on our faces before him as Peter did, saying, my Lord and my God, we thank you for Peter, for the word, for his love of you, was love of the pilgrims. And so I pray this is this morning as the Spirit of God moves in this place that you would bring those that do not know your Savior to saving knowledge that they would receive Jesus today. As children of God, remind us yet again and again, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. This is my blood which is shed for you, this do in remembrance of me. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, uh, there's good news. That's what the gospel is, good news. There is one that loves you beyond your faults. Jesus takes you as you are, but more importantly, he takes you despite the way you are. And he changes you because he loves you. He wants you to be a disciple of his. As we sing this morning, give you opportunity to make your way out of the pew. We can't save you, but we can take uh, an open Bible to a private prayer room, lead you through the scriptures to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can leave here this morning with that assurance. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church, either by a statement of faith or perhaps you uh, need to follow the Lord and believers' baptism, transfer of letter, whatever. We encourage you to do that as believers. Uh, All of this intensifies as we go through the latter part of of chapter 2. And yes, these, as we read in this article, (laughs) these are are difficult sayings. John 6 a lot of part of John 6 says, Lord, these are difficult sayings. Uh, who, who can know them? Who can believe them? Well, that's granted by the Spirit of God. What number, Brother Mike? 321. Three twenty one. If the Lord spoke, won't you come? To-